0: Welcome to YO Today. I'm Paul Pappas, director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Catherine Schwartz, professor of English at Vanderbilt University. Her teaching and research interests include early modern literature and culture, feminist, queer, and gender studies, relationships between embodiment and social subjectivity, and theories of community. Schwartz is the author of What You Will, Gender, Contract, and Shakespearean Social Space from the University of Pennsylvania Press, 2011 and Tough Love, Amazon Encounters in the English Renaissance from Duke University Press in 2000, which was awarded the uh, Roland H. Bainton Book Prize for Literature in 2001. Schwartz's research has been supported by fellowships from the American Council of Learned Society, the Folger Shakespeare Library, the Huntington Library, the Newberry Library, Vanderbilt's Research Scholars Grant Program, and the Robert Penn Warren Center for the Humanities. She has also served on the editorial board of Shakespeare Quarterly. Schwartz's current book project is tentatively titled Dying Social Subjects: Community and Mortality in the English Renaissance. On May 5th, 2022, Professor Schwartz delivered the UO English Department's annual Kingsley Weatherhead lecture in Shakespeare Studies titled The Ethics of Contagion, Debt, Death, Love, Plague. Thanks so much, Catherine, for coming on the show. It's great to have you with us. It's a pleasure. So first, tell us a bit about your background and how you wound up becoming interested in early modern English literature.
1: That was somewhat accidental. I started graduate school thinking I wanted to do Victorian literature. Um, I happened to be in my graduate program at a time when we had not only amazing early modernists on the faculty, but also a series of visiting people in early modern. I had the chance to take a seminar co-taught by Marjorie Garber and Stanley Cavell, which was really just hard to imagine even <laughs> as I was doing it. And I found that a lot of my most urgent questions were, made more sense to me in the context of early modern writings. So I drifted and then I stuck.
0: So let's talk first about your first book, Tough Love, a uh, wonderful title, Amazon Encounters in the English Renaissance. Amazing title. Can you give us a sense of the project of tough love? What, what is the tough love that that book talks about?
1: That actually ended up being a project about domesticity, which is the tough love I'm talking about. Um, it started as projects in the 1990s tended to do with an interest in exploration narratives and the exotic and with everyone fretting about what to do with the Columbus quincentenary, you know, people were thinking a lot about those issues. And then I realized that the stories I was reading, whether they were exploration narratives or Shakespeare plays or Spencer's the Fairy Queen, actually tended to be about courtship and marriage. So battles that resulted in marriage, and hence tough love, and hence also a lot of thinking about why the heterosocial kept mimicking this structure that's usually a battle between men.
0: So what what, Amazon encounters, are there Amazons in this book?
1: Well, there are in the sense that explorers kept thinking they had found them. Um, There's a wonderful moment in one collection of exploration narratives from the early 17th century where the editor writes in the margins of someone's account of finding the Amazons, not solitary unimamians, So he's saying, these are not one-breasted women. They cannot be the Amazons. But they're also just persistent figures of the imagination. When people want to tell a particular kind of story, they reach for Amazons as to populate that story.
0: And why were, why in the English Renaissance were people thinking so much about that kind of person?
1: I think some of it had to do with the, ways in which stories like the Penthesilea story, that's an addition to the Troy story, was circulating in very popular forms, not just in, you know, forms that one would only encounter at higher levels of education. I think part of it was that sense that going to new places meant that one would find all the fabulous things of myth. Um, But I think also that idea of the warrior queen is so embedded in British history, in that old British history, that sense of warrior queens are part of our tradition all the way to Elizabeth I being modeled, not as an Amazon, but as a warrior queen. So I think there are a bunch of things intersecting there.
0: So say a little bit more about this relationship you find between domesticity, marriage, and the warrior woman.
1: Well, it starts out often looking like a very conventional taming narrative. If you can tame an Amazon, you have proven yourself. But it actually often maps out more as you can have both comradeship of the kind you would have in a very privileged relationship with a man of the same status and marriage. So it becomes a kind of fantasy of what if both kinds of relationships could occupy the same body and the same space. And, of course, the answer is often trouble. So these are not stories of happy marriage, usually. These are stories of getting more than you bargained for.
0: So if in the first book you are interested in uh, women who are in some ways like men your second book what you will gender contract and shakespearean social space is about women modern early modern women who willingly conform to social conventions so wh- what drew you from these warrior women to these more compliant or conventional women
1: well, I would push back a little against the terms compliant and conventional um, because what drew me most was the recognition that that impulse to bring Amazons inside the social structure exposed a lot of the ways in which male writers of the period were worried about the sturdiness of that structure itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then I was thinking, well, then, while this worry about women who might kill their husbands as they sleep, while this worry about adultery, while this worry Well, some of the answers are obvious, but there's also a lot of worry about how can you ever know if your wife or daughter or any woman seems to be doing what she should. How can you ever know what she's actually thinking, what she's actually doing when you're not watching? So that idea that the whole structure rests on the choice to comply actually came from that sense of the the high awareness in a lot of writing from the period of how fragile those structures are. They need people to consent and to comply. And this idea that to know enough to agree to perform the role that one is required to perform might be a dangerous form of knowledge actually had some fairly direct links to those dangers in the earlier book.
0: So there's a, so you're correcting me, speaks to a kind of perceptual contradiction. That is to say, these women, they're, they are choosing to, you know, become married women and to live in a domestic environment. And you've, you've talked about the anxiety that this consent generates in men at the time. Um, Talk a little bit more about the agency that this kind of consent allows women in the early modern period to have in these texts that you look at?
1: Well, some of it is the agency of choice. Um, chastity, for example, which is one of the linchpins of a patrilineal society, is always an act of faith by men. It's an act of choice by women, and that distinction seems to be important. Um, it's also um, an agency to always hold the potential to do the other thing. And that potential doesn't have to be realized to have a kind of power to it. So one of the things that I was thinking about with consent in that book was the fact that consent is never durable, it has to be renewed, it's situational. And that knowledge is mapped all over the writings, including the most misogynist writings of the period, that you have to continually seduce your wife's will to match with yours. You cannot just assume that the I do moment at marriage takes care of it forever. And so it's that repetition of the need for an act that, even it's, if it's conformist, is also a choice that really starts to reveal certain things about structures being more temporary than they look. They have to be rebuilt over and over again.
0: So the the subtitle of the book, Gender Contract and Shakespearean Social Space, the book uh, there's a significant amount of the book that's devoted to looking at these problems in the context of Shakespeare's plays and Shakespeare's sonnets. Um, Why is it that Shakespeare in particular was helpful to you in illuminating these questions of feminine will, consent, and agency?
1: I think part of it is that Shakespeare and the particular plays I was looking at are familiar enough to people that to see this as one of the things, I mean, it's, it's just not difficult to see that a figure like Helena in all's well is precisely by pursuing something entirely conventional causing a lot of uneasiness. People know already that if they've seen or even read that play, they feel uneasy about Helena. They want to root for her, but she's a little too much, even though everything she wants is utterly orthodox. And so it was partly the the familiarity with that sense of dis-ease, measure for measure, another play where people always feel uneasy Mm -hmm. and they want Isabella to be the hero, but she doesn't quite work in the way that they expected. Um, It was partly, of course, the sonnets. I mean, the irresistibility of will in those sonnets and all the brilliant work that had been done on that. So I thought, well, let's look at those final sonnets, the often called dark lady sonnets, Mm -hmm. and see what's really going on there. Mm -hmm. Um, And you know, it was partly, in a way, accidental. You know, there were a lot of other texts that this could have migrated to, and that constellation around Shakespeare started with two articles and then just pulled a couple of other Shakespeare texts
0: in with it. So let's talk a little bit about the sonnets since you raised the, the Dark Lady sonnets. First of all, um, my sense from the research that we've done in preparation for this interview is that your take on the Dark Lady sonnets is, was, at the time when, when, you, when it was published, an unusual one. So would you say first give us a sense of what the critical consensus was about the Dark Lady sonnets before your intervention and then tell us a little bit about what what makes your intervention somewhat unusual. Well,
1: I think there was already some pushback against consensus. I think there had been for a long time been a kind of consensus that this is where the misogyny happens. This is where the beautiful boy gives way to the, the lusty woman. This is where everything falls and you know, people had pushed back on that by pointing out that the, well, all that we don't know about who was actually being addressed in a number of those sonnets, Mm -hmm. but, but also by pointing out that the sonnets to the young man are not nearly as benign as they might at first appear. And, and there had been some thought about things that might be going on in that last set. But I think in arguing for a kind of contractual relation being iterated in those last sonnets between the speaker and the Dark Lady, rather than taking at its word the kind of, um, you know, you are horrible and everyone should see you as horrible. Because, you know, that's not what the speaker says. Mm-hmm. I mean, he s- when he talks about madness, he says, I would rather be mad in believing you and believing that my love for you makes sense than be sane, right? So there, there, there is some kind of reaching for an acceptable, a workable agreement in those sonnets that interests me. There's a, there's a request there. You know, if, if my will and your will could meet, we could have something not necessarily ideal, but functional, right? Something that is maybe just good enough for just long enough. <laughs> and there's, you know, there's a voice in those sonnets that is not the voice of rage or disillusion. Those things are there sometimes, but there's also this other voice that's saying, but can't we make this work? And I don't think that's what a a lot of people want from those sonnets. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying by any means that it's the only way to read them, but I didn't want to ignore that voice.
0: So you you mentioned in passing that there are other, uh, that, that you're, that it, that it migrated sort of naturally, the Shakespearean focus sort of developed for a number of reasons. But you, you also mentioned that it could have gone other ways. There could have been other writers. Are there other English Renaissance writers that are also interested in female agency, female will in the context of domesticity?
1: Oh, sure. I mean, I think the, the obvious place to reach would be Milton, right? Um, that extraordinary moment in Paradise Lost when Eve has eaten the apple and she briefly thinks, now I know so much, maybe I won't tell Adam, right? <laughs> that, that kind of mapping of, of choice, right? I could keep all of this or I could share it. Um, certainly I could have gone back to Spencer because I was far from done with the figure of Bittermart mm-hmm. and what that, like Helena, someone who pursues marriage, but in these wildly unorthodox ways. But the, So means and ends, right? The means are incredibly transgressive in some ways. The end is incredibly conventional. Um, there are other playwrights from the period who, you know, especially in the revenge tragedies, where the solution is often brought about through a kind of feminine act of will that may be the will to kill or the will to marry or both indistinguishably, same for the tragic comedies. So, you know, it's hard not to see it everywhere for me.
0: So let's talk about your newest project, your current project, which is called Dying Social Subjects, Community and Mortality in the English Renaissance. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing in that work?
1: <sighs> That's a temporally strange one for me because it started pre-pandemic, obviously, and I was interested then mostly in and I still am. I don't want to distance myself from this first starting point, but in the ways that the abstract notion of social subjectivity and the embodied condition of just being a transient living person keep, not just in the Renaissance, but even more aggressively in some ways in our own time, keep mm-hmm. getting pulled apart. So even when we think about election campaigns, we are always being invited into the position of the subject, the single issue voter, voter the Latino voter, the, you know, this. and So I was thinking, what about the basic fact that the only social subjects there are are people, right? Are people who are by definition always dying, always in the process of dying? And where might one find the recognition of that? And I thought, well, one place obviously is times of disaster when it seems, especially in earlier periods, that there's no reason anyone would survive. Um, people may say, well, some people live through those earlier plagues or wars or famines or whatever, but there's no reason to know that the whole thing won't just end. Not just a lot of people, mm-hmm. but that the social order itself might just be depopulated into non-existence. And I thought, well, surely at those moments people must be talking about the ways in which people inhabiting fragile bodies are holding the whole thing together. And when the, well, in fall of 2019, I was on a research fellowship, you know, reading first person accounts of Renaissance plagues. And that was already haunting me because they felt right here, right now. I mean, those first person voices just would not stay 400 years ago. And just touching those books that, that moment when one of the, someone who's collected a bunch of them and he says, I've collected these because they were worn out of print. Mm. And that phrase just haunts me because, The idea of people flipping through these books trying to cure the plague is just, it's terrible. It's Mm -hmm. terrible to think about. And and so, you know, I spent a lot of that time being grateful that I was at a place where when people said, how was the day, I could say, really hard, you know, (laughs) and really talk about this. And then within a month of being done with that fellowship, COVID. And so suddenly I had this problem of way more relevance than anyone could ever possibly want it felt that to speak about this as an intellectual question which it had never been for me alone but it could sound like one right i'm just interested right it just felt so wrong in that moment when people were dying and so thinking about it's still important it's still important to say yes the abstractions are not self-sufficient. They have to be populated, and the populace is too often discarded because it's renewable. And But trying to think about what does it mean in this moment to think, is it renewable, and for whom? Um, that's been a struggle. It's mm-hmm. been a struggle to work my way back into this project on terms Affected by my own direct losses by losses suffered by people close to me, but also by just this sense of loss We've all been living with mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so it's more a project about plague than it used to be mm-hmm. um, and It's a different kind of project about Loss than it used to be
0: so the the Weatherhead lecture that you gave yesterday um, The ethics of contagion debt death love plague obviously this seems to be very, I mean, given the lecture, which I attended, it's clearly very, it was engaging in multiple ways, our present moment, as well as talking about uh, this, uh, the English Renaissance. So can you tell a little, tell us a little bit about that talk that you gave yesterday?
1: Sure. Um, That was, you know, another time capsule thing because Brent and I had worked all that up before COVID and coming back to it when it was finally possible to actually do it, and thinking, is it the same title? And I thought, yeah, I think it is the same title, is it the same talk? Not at all. Um, and trying to think about how one of the things that came in that probably wouldn't have been there except as a, a kind of historical meditation was that relationship between contagion and quarantine. and. Because quarantine, I mean, everyone knew in, no doubt, in the medieval period, certainly in the Renaissance, that quarantine didn't really work, but you had to try. Um, But thinking about that in our own, in some ways, more efficient model of self-quarantine, right, and thinking about what does that have to do with the contagion of ideas about this? Um, What does that have to do with... Um, But the question of choice, you know, to what extent are we choosing to be isolated from people we love? To what extent are we doing it because we have been told it's our civic duty? To what extent is is it materially imposed upon us when we cannot be with our loved ones as they are dying? And so thinking about contagion and quarantine as both much more present to us but also much more intimately connected um, than perhaps they had been when I was first thinking.
0: So in that sense, there's a kind of resonance between our moment and the moment that you're studying. But you also pointed out um, yesterday that there are s- some serious incommensurabilities there. So you, you spoke about, and you just mentioned now, in the English Renaissance and in the medieval period, the possibility that it would all go away, that, we, that, that all the people would die. That was a real possibility. And you ch- spoke about our moment as being different in that regard. Say a little bit about that incommensurability.
1: Yeah, I think our—I don't know. Sometimes I call it faith. Sometimes I call it arrogance about no. science and especially medical science. Um, made it much easier to say, if we do the right things, we will not die. Um, now it's not true. It's still not true. A lot of people got sick and a lot of people died who were trying to do all the right things, but. That narrative, I think, and part of this is the shift from a theologically governed culture to a secular culture. Um, part of it is advances in medical science, but that conviction that this could not be for everyone. Um, and one of the things that troubled me most, and this didn't come into this talk, although it is in other places in my writing, is watching, especially in the comment section on articles about the pandemic, and I'm talking about what I think of as my publications, The Mm -hmm. Times, The Mm -hmm. Post, right? Mm -hmm. Watching that desire to have this be an extinction event for other people. Mm. And I would love to say that that was just people who wanted the blue cities to be depopulated. There was a lot of that, Mm -hmm. but it was my people, too. Mm -hmm. People saying, oh, all those people who go to the red rallies, maybe they'll die. and. That was chilling to me Mm -hmm. because I could feel the pull of it. You know, we were so, and still are, so divided by this and by so many things that that desire to say, maybe if you just went away, my life would be better. But I honestly can't imagine that as a response to a plague four or six hundred years ago. I can Mm -hmm. imagine individuals maybe wishing ill on other individuals, Mm -hmm. but when it was the will of God to say, oh, maybe God will smite all my enemies, well, maybe people thought that, but to appropriate God's will in that way. Mm. But here, when we say, oh, it's, it's a virus, it somehow became okay to say, maybe it'll take out all the people who disagree with me. Mm. And I'm not saying everyone felt that way. And even people who said those things sometimes said, but I don't really want to feel this way. But it was alarming. And mm-hmm. it was something that struck me as historically distinct, that mm-hmm. there's some tether between our, I'll call it, faith in science and our ability to To want to vector a disease and that's not fun to think about that's been one of the hardest things to write about
0: Mm -hmm. Um, it's also true from the talk yesterday and from what you've said that you also believe that there are uh, there are ways that studying texts like from the early modern period or texts from historical periods that they are illuminating for the present, that they help us to understand things about the present. And you've just explained in a way how the difference between this uh, secular view that we have and our view of science is quite different from the view that people suffering under plagues in the early modern period, thinking it was God's will, would have had. I'm I'm the director of the Oregon Humanities Center. You are a, a, a scholar in the humanist field of English literature. Why, why do you feel that it's important for people in the present to study early modern texts? Why is that a good thing for them to do?
1: I always start my Shakespeare classes by asking, um, give me one reason to do this right now and one reason to be skeptical about yeah. it. I always want to open up that question. Hmm. and. The last time I did that, just this last spring, the first thing a student said about skepticism was maybe we should instead be working on climate change, right? right? And I said, it'd be interesting to think what we could do with these three hours a week to work on climate change. Um, But the answers they give are the answer I would give, which is because maybe we will enrich our vocabularies for our predicaments. Because maybe it's not about sameness across time. it's about Things do recur in different forms, and therefore generate different ways of thinking. Um, it's the same root problem often, whether we're talking about um, discriminatory attitudes toward particular groups, or whether we're talking about wholesale catastrophe. You know, we we have see a recurrence of those problems, but the language of plague in the Renaissance is not the language of the Cold War, is not the language of COVID. Is you know, and when I say language, I do mean literally language, but I also mean modes of thought. Um, the philosophies of different periods use different modes of thought to get at problems. And I think the more of those we have, the better our chances of talking our way towards some understanding of what we might do. Um, So for me, if this all stays in the past, we should just read it on our own because we enjoy it and think it's beautiful. But if it can come forward and help us speak in the present, then it's worth doing collectively.
0: So um, one of the challenges that contemporary students have when they're reading early modern texts or medieval texts is that the language is quite different, and in some cases radically different, and it's difficult for contemporary readers to read it. How do you solve that problem in the classroom?
1: I actually tend to just ask my students to trust the first hour to become something else. I say for the first hour, especially early in the semester, this is going to feel like you're reading poetry and old poetry at that. Trust me contingently until you have found out if it is true for you that after that first hour you will not feel that barrier. And it is almost always true. Um, I learned this trick with Spencer because, as you know, Spencer's verse forms tend to just jangle in one's head for a while and then one's just reading. and. So, and students will often say, when so-and-so said this, it broke my heart. You know, mm-hmm. they actually do start hearing it, not just as something that they can understand, but as something that's actually creating affective response. Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of it's about that first hour. Just be okay with it sounding far away and difficult and needing a lot of footnotes and then see what happens.
0: Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. So um, we're just about out of time. This will be my last question. The talk you gave yesterday, a good portion of the talk was dealing with the uh, with work by Shakespeare. Um, you've worked with Shakespeare throughout your scholarship, um, and Shakespeare remains alive and well in many ways. Uh, there are many other early modern authors. You mentioned Milton, who's also quite well-known, but there's something about Shakespeare that the endurance of Shakespeare, the enduring interest in Shakespeare, that we have a dedicated lecture series in the English department the Weatherhead Lectureship is for Shakespeare's lectures in Shakespeare and Shakespeare studies. Have you, do you have any ideas about why it is that this particular author, the this particular body of works has had this intensely lengthy duration of popularity and, endur- and endurance? Uh, um,
1: Two answers to that, and I'll try and make them brief. The first is the self-fulfilling prophecy. As Mm -hmm. soon as Shakespeare was singled out in the 18th and 19th centuries, you know, what Bernard Shaw would call bardolatry, right? Mm -hmm. It became, we invented Shakespeare as our poet of humanity, as people sometimes say. And once that had happened, we were going to keep seeing it. We were going to keep seeing the exceptionalism of Shakespeare, which I'm sure Shakespeare would have been delighted by, but found (laughs) decidedly odd. (laughs) But the second one is, um, I think it's precisely that Shakespeare is so stubborn in refusing to answer some of our most basic questions. We know when Marlowe is going after a particular social hypocrisy. Um, We know what Ben Jonson is after in a particular satire on a particular social formation. Um, Shakespeare doesn't tell us what to think, Mm -hmm. and that can be very frustrating, Mm -hmm. but it also opens him up to, this is the last part of my answer, infinite adaptation because we can basically decide he's saying what we would prefer him to be saying mm-hmm. or what he hope he, we, we hope he's not saying. Or, and multiple productions at the same moment, and I saw this when I was living in New York, may take completely different approaches to the same play, and they all make sense. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's precisely that refusal to be clear about what side he's on relative to an issue, about whether this is a critique, an endorsement, or just an acceptance of a particular question, Um, that keeps the adaptation process going, both on stage and in all these other wonderful forms in which he gets adapted. Mm -hmm. And so something that may or may not have been what he meant to do, I think, has kept him with us.
0: Well, thank you, Catherine Schwartz, for speaking with us today, for sharing those really interesting reflections on Shakespeare, on your work in general. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. I've been speaking with Katherine Schwartz, Professor of English at Vanderbilt University. On May 5th, 2022, Schwartz gave a talk titled The Ethics of Contagion, Debt, Death, Love, Plague, as the UO English Department's twenty twenty two Kingsley Weatherhead lecturer. Thanks so much for watching.